This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. There was a yogi, a holy man in the Hindu faith, named Yogi Rao. It's kind of fun to say. You should try it. Yogi Rao. And Yogi Rao, in 1966, announced to the world that he would, in front of cameras and a live audience, walk on water. And because he had built a little bit of fame, training and being the spiritual advisor to some celebrities in Hollywood, people took him seriously. And so right there in India, they set up this big pool prepared for him. 600 spectators came out paying anywhere between $20 and $100 to be there. He did a pre-show of swallowing some steel tacks and drinking some nitric acid and walking across some, some flaming coals. And the moment that everyone was waiting for came, and he walked up the steps to this pool, and he stood there and he meditated for 15 minutes in front of a silent crowd. And finally, he opened his eyes, he stepped out over the water, and he plunged into it as if anyone was surprised. And his followers rush to help him, and he's flopping around like a fish, and he comes out of the water, and he points angrily at the crowd, and he says, one of you isn't a believer, as if it was the crowd's fault. Yogi Rao had some big things to say, some big claims, and he didn't have the power to back them up. It's amazing how fast your name can disappear from media. Paul has prayed for the church at Colossae and he prayed that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and walk worthily of God's name. And out of that, they would bear fruit and they would come to know God more. And they wouldn't be able to do this on their own. They would need the power of God to even do that. And so he's closed this beautiful prayer, and now he is going to deal with the issue at hand. And the issue at hand is that in the church of Colossae, heresies are beginning to bleed in, and people are beginning to believe and follow these weird heresies. And they're not really sure, you can't really read Colossians and figure out exactly what they believed, but some of the things they were doing because of these heresies were worshiping angels or worshiping these elemental spirits. Some of the things that they were doing were living these ascetic lifestyles where they were denying themselves any sort of pleasures to the extreme. Some people think that it had something to do with like a, a Jewish mysticism something because they were really strict about dietary laws and circumcisions and holy days. But whatever it was, whatever the heresy was, it's not really important. What is important is that Paul is going to deal with the heresy in a really simple manner. He's going to confront whatever is wrong in their beliefs simply by pointing them back to a correct understanding of who Jesus is. And by getting that right, by turning the compass or turning the boat back towards true north, all the falsities that they're beginning to buy into 
will be disarmed. The rug will be pulled out from under them. And Paul is going to present Jesus with some huge claims to power. And yet, unlike Yogi Rao, Jesus backs every one of them. Why is Paul so concerned with understanding who Jesus is? And that's what we're going to deal with tonight. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I made a reference to previously, and I want you to read it for yourselves. It goes like this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. This is what we have to deal with. Who is Jesus? Does he back his claims? Why is Paul so desperate for us to have a right understanding of who Jesus is? It's because Jesus is the starting point of knowing God, and he is the way to salvation. Why Jesus, of all people? Because Paul is proposing that Jesus is God. And not only is he God, but he is the complete and perfect self-revelation of who God is. If that doesn't make sense to you, you have to imagine someone you can't imagine, unless that someone makes an effort for you to know them. And that is our God. He's transcendent. He's above the universe. He's outside of time. He lives in a realm that we can't perceive because it is a realm that is other than our realm. The only way that we can know him is if he self-reveals himself to us, and that is Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus is knowing God. Knowing God is having salvation. Jesus can only do what he's done because of who he is. So who is he? Colossians 1, we're going to be reading from 15 through 23 tonight. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Is everyone there? If you're not there, give me a... Okay, we're all there. Let's go. Someone say, let's go. Uh, Y'all got to do better than that. This is God's word. Let's go. All right. Thank you, thank you. Colossians 1, 15. We're talking about Jesus. If you look at the verse before it, it makes it clear that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, 
This is Paul's summary statement. Everything else is explaining that phrase. There is an invisible God that we have no connection with. There is an invisible God that we have no access to. There's an invisible God we cannot know. And yet that God cared and loved and chose. And that invisible God stepped out of heaven into flesh to be known, to be accessible. We may never comprehend him, but God has made himself apprehendable, reachable. He is imminent. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And right here we got to pause because this throws people off. Wait a minute. Firstborn of all creation. Now there is an old heresy called Arianism. And there's another heresy today called Jehovah's Witness. And they believe that Jesus was created by God. And they may look at this verse and say, see, he's the firstborn. He has an origin. He came from someplace. And one of the bad analogies of the Trinity is when people say that the Trinity is like the sun. The Father is the sun, and the heat and the light are the... Oh, no, the, father, the Son is the Father, and the heat and the light are the Son and the Holy Spirit. But what they don't realize is when they say that analogy, they are suggesting that just like the heat and light are emanations of the Son, that the Son and the Holy Spirit are, find their origins in the Father. And that isn't right. They are three co-equal, co-eternal of one God. We can stretch our brains on that another night. But this is not saying that he was born of the Father, that he is the first created of all creation. We have to dive in for some cultural analysis, if you remember the Book of Book series. To be the firstborn is actually a title. It's not just signifying birth order, but it's discussing a sibling's position and a sibling's ranking in the family. The firstborn is the leader. The firstborn is the spokesman. The firstborn, and this is what you need to grab onto, has the right of inheritance from the father. And if you remember last week, we have back in verse 11, down to 12, giving thanks to the father, there's that paternal word, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We're talking about the inheritance. Jesus having the firstborn title is saying that he inherits all of creation and all of heaven. He is ranking above them all. Jesus has the right to this inheritance. And we see this actually already played out in the Psalms. In Psalm 89, verse 26 through 27, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen. It's talking about this coming Messiah. And it says, he, this Messiah, will cry out to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I, God is speaking to this Messiah, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So this isn't talking about birth order. It's not talking about chron chronology. This is talking about ranking and position, that Jesus is over all creation. He inherits all of heaven and all of the universe. He ranks over them all. Which is why, in this next coming verse, let's read that, 
it actually brings out four different understandings of ruling, and he's over all of them because he ranks above. Colossians 1.16 says this, For by him, by Jesus, all things were created. Now that's the summary. Now he's going to give examples. What do I mean by all things? This is what he means. In heaven and on earth, what is visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, no matter what you lump in, it's all of it. All things were created through him and for him. That is for his glory. That is for the one who is inheriting it. That is the firstborn of creation, Jesus Christ. So he lays out some pretty powerful things here in simply being the firstborn. And he gives, in this verse 16 and 17, three reasons why Jesus is sovereign ruler over creation. Now, sovereign means that Jesus has the right to rule. Providence means that he is ruling. You can be a king and have the right to rule and never do anything. But to say that God is at work, that he has providence, is to say that God not only has the right to be in charge of stuff, he is actually functioning in it. He's flexing in his creation at all times. So the first reason that he has the right to sovereignly rule is, one, he created it all. John 1, 2 through 4 says that he existed in the beginning with the Father. So that blows up that Arian and Jehovah's Witness heresy. He is already existing with the Father. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word, talking about Jesus, gave life to everything that was created. And notice as it's unpacking what all things means, there's four different words for ruling authorities. It's because he's saying that his authority supersedes all of them. Whether it's, what do we have here? We have dominions, rulers, authorities, thrones. He's over them all. Daniel chapter 2, verse 20 through 21 says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. Listen to this. To whom belong wisdom and might, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. So whenever you hear of a ruler that dies or that gets dethroned, God's in charge of that. God's the one being like, nope, I'm done with you. Poof. And God's the one going, I'm raising this one up to fill that place. Whether good or evil, God is in charge. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So why does he have the sovereign right to rule? Number one, he created it all. He gets to do what he wants. Number two, he was before it all. It says here in verse 17, it says, he is before all things. Isaiah 43, 19 says, from eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. From eternity to eternity means that God exists in both directions on the timeline eternally, forever. He's outside of time. We can't even wrap our minds around that. Like we have kind of an idea of something lasting forever. We can't understand something that came from forever. And yet in verse 17, it says he was before all things. He's eternal. So why does he have a sovereign right to rule? He created it all. He was before it all. And then the last one is that in him, all things hold together. He sustains it all. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus does. Upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now think about this. Let's just take a minute to digress. Let's think about the universe for a minute. There are forces at work and laws at work all the time. Think about gravity. Every celestial body is affected by gravity. There's not one that's just free, roaming around, doing its own thing, that isn't under the laws of gravity. All the way down to atoms that are held together by three different forces. It's like electromagnetism and then strong radiation. Anyway, you guys can go look it up. These forces are at work all the time. And they're evidences that God's word that brought it into existence is continuing to sustain it. That gravity continues. That those forces holding atoms together continue are evidence that God is sustaining it. Think about this. Okay, now I'm gonna, let's stretch our brains a little bit. Those laws and forces that we're talking about, the laws of entropy and the laws of thermodynamics, gravity and all that stuff. They are consistently present at all places in the universe at the same time. No matter where you fly out to, no matter what your telescope can see, at that point, all of those laws, all those forces, still exactly the same at every point in the universe. Everything in the universe comes under the influence and power of those forces and laws. And those laws are mathematically consistent everywhere in the universe. You see where I'm going with this? Anyone like ahead of me? What we see is the micro, we see omnipresence, we see omnipotence, we see consistency and immutability in the micro, which are reflecting the macro of who God is. Because God, the artist, is revealing a little bit of his nature in what he has created. He sustains all things by the power of his word. And it will be consistent until the day that God silences his word for a great uncreation. His word, which created it all, continues to sustain it all. And we think about God on that kind of level. When we think about that Jesus is that God on that kind of level, it suddenly gives a lot more depth and meaning to what Jesus says when he says things like Matthew 6.25. Let's, let's turn there together. Matthew 6.25. This is worth memorizing. Try to wrap your minds around who's speaking. Matthew 6, 25. Jesus 
says, therefore, I tell you. Not, therefore, this is pretty true. Confucius says, wisdom suggests, therefore, I, the creator, sustainer of the universe, tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you'll eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And then jump down to verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now back up to verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things, all that stuff you're worried about, will be added to you. How can Jesus make a promise like that? Because God's word is as consistent as gravity. His consistency in nature reveals his consistency of his word. This is the Jesus we're talking about. Pastor Ben once said, my life is in the hands of the one who holds the world. I like it. Jesus was before all things, he created all things, and sustains all things. Therefore, he is supreme over all things and has, to, has the right to rule all things, and he does so. Let's keep going. Colossians 1.18. Let's go back. Keep your thumb in Colossians anytime we go away. We're going back to it. 1.18. And he, talking about Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. This is a really clear statement here, and it's one that we graze over fast. Because there's a lot of metaphors for the church. The church is called the family, the kingdom, the vineyard, the flock, the building, the bride. But here it's the body. Why? Because Jesus doesn't operate like a CEO of his business. Jesus doesn't operate like the government and take votes. If he is the head of the body... That means that he is in control of the unity of the body, of the direction of the body, and if the body is separated from the head, it's no longer a body, it's a corpse. And it's one of the reasons that Paul is striving so hard to say, no, 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 we need to stay connected and focused on who Jesus is. We have to stay connected to our head, to our king, to our Lord, because he's in control. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Wow. This is talking about Jesus' resurrection. How does Jesus back up all of his claims? Yogi Rao said, I'm going to walk on water, and he didn't. Jesus called his shot. He said where he would die. He said when he would die. He said how he would die. And he said by who he would die. But his predictions weren't just about his death. Jesus called his shot and said he would do a miracle that no one has ever done in the history of ever. He said that he would resurrect himself from the dead. If any of us have ever lost someone, we know that doesn't happen. Death's final. And heartbreaking because it's so final. And Jesus calls his shot. And he has the power to back it up because he's the Lord of life. 
And he's the God of the universe. This resurrection is so critical for a lot of reasons. Here are a few of them. It confirms that Jesus it confirms Jesus' Godship. It confirms that everything he said was and will be true. It founded the kingdom of heaven on earth, the church. It defeated death once and for all. And here's where it gets really critical for us. It stands as a forerunner, as a firstborn from the dead, as a sample for what we can expect as his followers. Romans 8, 11. Let's turn there. Romans 8, 11. This is good for you to see it for yourself. This is the kind of truth that you can hold on to where you don't fear death anymore. Because there is so much hope in an inheritance with Jesus for the kingdom that he has the right to, that through the cross he shares with his people. Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's the firstborn from the dead, this time because of chronology, because we're going to follow. At God's return, we will experience the same kind of resurrection, to be glorified, just like Jesus was. Let's go back to Colossians. He is before all things. In him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Wow. Preeminent means having paramount rank, paramount dignity, or paramount importance means outstanding, supreme, surpassing all others. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is like the bookend. Paul opens with, he's the image of the invisible God, and now he's closing with, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. The disciples came to him, specifically Philip in John 14, 9, and they said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to Philip and the rest of the disciples, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. In him all fullness of God dwells. So who is Jesus? He's the firstborn of creation. He's the creator of everything. He's eternal the sustainer of all, the head of the church, the firstborn from the dead, preeminent over all things and the fullness of God. Now, if you're tracking with me in Scripture, we're going to jump past verse 20 for a minute and come back to that. Let's go to verse 21. We've looked at who Jesus is. Now, we'll very briefly talk about who we are. Verse 21. And you, all right, he's talking to us, who were once alienated, 
Think about that word, alienated, as in like an outside force pushed you away. You were once alienated and hostile. Hostile, that's not a neutral word. Hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. So who are we before Jesus? If you haven't accepted Jesus as your Savior, this is the definition of where you stand before God. And if you have called on Jesus as your Lord, in faith you've repented and you're obedient to him, this is who you used to be. Who were we? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Sick with what? Sin. Romans 3, 10 through 12. No one seeks for God. No one does good, not even one. Ephesians 2, 1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Therefore, Romans 1.18, and here's where you stand before God if you haven't accepted Jesus. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If you haven't made a decision to serve Jesus, you need to understand, if you don't feel like the wrath of God is against you yet, that's because God is mercifully giving you one more day. And if it be according to his will, maybe one more. Scripture says that he is waiting out of his mercy so that the most may be saved. So if you feel like you're not under the thumb of a crushing, sovereign God who you've rebelled against, that's actually because of his love, not because of his indifference. We are simply a small, fluffy, white bunny on the highway facing off with a Mack truck. And we're angry and we refuse to move because this is my truth. This is my highway. I get to do what I want. I'm going to sit here and snarl at the truck until it become a gross white bunny on the front of a Mack truck. God is the sovereign of all the universe. And he is spiraling toward his will and against all unrighteousness, those who are hostile, and his wrath alienates all of those who have not submitted to him. So who are we? Verse 12 and 13 says that we were outside the inheritance of the kingdom. We were in darkness. Verse 21 says we were alienated, hostile, and doing evil. Ah, but there's such good news. What has Jesus done? I love what Paul has woven through this whole thing. From beginning to end, Jesus doesn't just have a bunch of titles. He doesn't just have a bunch of powers. He didn't stand by and watch, but out of his love and for his glory, Jesus took action. Just for a minute, let's jump back to verse 13. 1 verse 13, it says this. He, talking about Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Darkness. This is in contrast to the end of verse 12 where it says that we are sharing in the inheritance of his saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferring us to the kingdom of his son. Remember that kingdom is the one that Jesus inherits as the firstborn over all creation. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption means to save by payment of ransom, and it's talking about the emancipation of a slave. We have been redeemed 
We have been bought with the blood of Jesus at a high price, the price of his blood. All throughout Paul's writings and John's writings, light is equivalent to knowing God and knowing God is equivalent to salvation. Because we're not just talking about knowing facts about God. We're talking about having a personal relationship with him, knowing him like you know your best friend is equated to salvation. It's verses like this, John 1, 4 through 5, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Life and light, they're together. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. It's knowing God. Light is equivalent to knowing God. Knowing God is equivalent to salvation. So what has Jesus done? He's transferred us from darkness into light. Now let's jump forward to Colossians 20 that we skipped. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Peace. We were alienated by God, and now there's peace. We were the snarling bunny on the highway, and now, because of what Jesus did, we're sitting in the passenger seat of the Mack truck. That's just a funny image. Colossians 1, jump to verse 22. We were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled, there's that word reconciled again, in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach to him. Those words are contrasting alienated, hostile, and doing evil. Reconciled, meaning to change. Our relationship with him has changed totally, completely, and fully. Jesus can only do what he's done because of who he is. No less than God himself can live a holy life. No less than God himself can die as a perfect sacrifice. No less than God himself can withstand his own wrath against sin on our behalf. You know, occasionally, I'll find like a little two-inch smudge on my carpet maybe from a shoe or the dog's paw or something like that. And I'll go get the carpet cleaner, which is like chemically altered for, to, you know, suppress smells because I have five kids. The dog, like, I don't have to worry about the dog. The kids make, it's anyway. So I'll find this little two-inch smudge, and I'll hit that bad boy with about two spritzes. And then, boop, a little paper towel, the smudge is gone. It's great. Now, one time, three years ago, my son Dominic had a vomit attack in the middle of his carpeted bedroom. And it came, and it came. And he's just standing there. I'm like, run to the toilet. He doesn't know. He's just little. And he just keeps coming, and it keeps coming. And a couple of times, his head came up like this, and he did like this spray, you know, spatter all over the place. Until, and I kid you not, there was this, this sour, reeking puddle as thick as the soles of my shoes, about five foot wide. It was awful. 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 How much carpet cleaner do you think it would take to clean up that mess? Oh, yeah. Gallons and hours. 
elevate, we think that our sin isn't very bad. We're pretty sure that our, our lie is just the two-inch smudge. We're pretty sure that cheating on a test or back-talking our parents or whatever that is, that one time getting on the Internet, that one, you know, we're pretty sure that that's the two-inch smudge. But let's, let's get real because we can get a little bit of a clue to how vile our sin is, not by our estimation of whether or not it's bad, but let's take a clue by what it took to clean it. We need to get out of the mindset. We need to get out of the mindset where we think to ourselves, I am so valuable that I was worth the, de the, the death of God's son. And instead, we need to look at the sacrifice of Jesus and consider that our sin, which covered us and defined us, was such a sour pile of reeking vomit that it took Jesus out of love, taking the full force of God's wrath and bleeding out and dying to remove that sin that we're pretty sure wasn't so bad. We need to understand the chasm between us and a holy God. We need to understand the incomparable love and grace that God shows us at the cross while we're patting ourselves on the back saying, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that person or that person or that person. When it took Jesus' sacrifice so that we could be reconciled and redeemed to the Father. To the glory of his name, Jesus showed the attribute of his love and grace and wrath and justice and mercy by wading into our mess and using his own blood to redeem and reconcile us. What has Jesus done? He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the kingdom. He's delivered us from darkness into light. He's redeemed us, forgiven us, reconciled us to the Father by his death. He's made us holy, made us blameless, and made us above reproach. Not by our own strength, but because his perfection was laid over us. And our, our sin, our reeking vomit that we wore was laid over him, and he took the penalty for it. What's going to come out of those who have been reconciled to God? What is it going to look like when you see a believer? What is your life going to look like when you've genuinely chosen to make Jesus your Lord and Savior? When you've actually repented of your sin and begun to follow him? What's the life of a believer look like? Let's go back to Colossians 1. We're going to jump to 23. in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. It kind of sounds like something we're supposed to do, right? Like, okay, I'm going to continue in the faith, and I'm not going to shift from the hope that I have in the gospel. That's a really crazy if. 
We're talking about like our eternal destiny between heaven or the fires of hell is, is hanging on whether we wake up in the morning and we do a good job at these things. I don't know about you, but that's terrifying. It's not a great if for me that I would continue in the faith and not shift from the hope. But these aren't works. They're indicators of a transformed life. There's evidences that people were never believers to begin with, no matter how many times they claimed it, no matter what they did during worship or how many times they went to the altar. 1 John 2.19, listen, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. Talking about people that used to be quote-unquote believers left. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. Then it might be plain that they are not of us. Their departure revealed they were never true believers. Lifelong evidences of a believer are that they bear fruit and they continue steadfastly in the faith. Going back to last week's. This isn't our job to figure out. Our job is to be obedient. And God will empower us, back to last week, verse 11. He'll empower us according to his strength so we don't have to wake up in the morning trying to please God. We, we can't. Jesus pleased God at the cross on our behalf. Our role is to follow Jesus. Our salvation isn't based on our faithfulness. Our salvation is based on his faithfulness. What do you have faith in? That Jesus was a worthy sacrifice for our sin. That's where we put our faith. Not that we can wake up in the morning and do everything right. So what do we do? We go back to last week's verse 9. We pursue the knowledge of his will through his word. And we walk in a manner worthy of him, leaning on his power to do it. Yogi Rao depended on his own strength and abilities. We can depend on the firstborn of creation, the creator of it all, eternal, sustainer of it all, head of the church, firstborn from the dead, preeminent over all things, and the very fullness of God who loved us and he died to reconcile us. And he proved it all by having the power to back it up and rising from the grave. Recap. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He is God. Jesus was before the universe, created it, and holds it together. We were once enemies of God and under his wrath. Jesus has redeemed us and reconciled us to the Father. Jesus can do what he did for you because of who he was. Those who are redeemed will be stable in faith and hopeful in the gospel. And it is Jesus who reminds us that we have no need to worry. So I've got two challenges for you. One, memorize verses 15 through 20. Why? What's the point of sitting down and memorizing five verses? It's because if Paul saw a right view of Jesus as correcting bad theology, then how much more when your theology says, I should be stressed about today, can it be corrected by remembering a right view of who Jesus is and his control in our lives and his love for us and what he's done for us? Because if there's anyone in here that's stressed out or deals with anxiety on a regular basis, there's anyone in here that has question marks around the future, that's because we've lost a view of who Jesus is. Take the time, and when you start feeling anxious, 
you have these verses memorized and you remember who he is. Don't take my word for it. Try it out. Memorize five verses. The second is, I challenge you to think of an area of your life that isn't holified by God yet. One that's not set apart for Jesus yet. That's worthy of him. And begin to pray specifically about it and surrender it to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Elevate. I thank you for those who have hung on as we've dove deep into who you are. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you for doing what we could never do. Lord, we love you. We surrender to you. We give you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.